morning, friends. Uh, we're kicking off a brand new series this morning. It's entitled, James, All Up in Your Business. Because if you've ever read the book of James before, which is a letter uh, that was written to the scattered church, uh, you will know that James doesn't mince words. Uh, James is not afraid to mix it up. James is not afraid to get in your face. James is all up in your business. So we're going to be spending some time over the next number of weeks engaging uh, with this letter that was written, possibly one of the earliest books written in the entire New Testament. What I'd like to do this morning is give us a little introduction to the book, okay? A little background, a little context, what's going on, who wrote it, all that kind of fun stuff. And then we're going to look at just the first four verses, okay? Within those four verses, there's just a couple of words I want to kind of look at. And then uh, at the end of our time, to illustrate this text, uh, I'm going to read you um, some private pages from my mother's diary, uh, with her permission, and I'm going to do my best to not uh, cry through the rest of the service. Let's dive in. Uh, James, his actual name, believe it or not, is Jacob. We call him James because that is apparently the English translation of the name Jacob, but homeboy is actually named Jacob. So if your name is James, maybe you're actually a secret Jacob. And if your name is Jacob, maybe you can start calling yourself James and say, it's just the English translation of my name. Uh, James is actually uh, not either one of the two disciples of Jesus that were both named James. There's actually two disciples of the 12 that followed Jesus that were named James. You had uh, James who was uh, James and John were brothers. And then you also had James the Lesser, uh, which literally just means the younger. So Austin, remember you were afraid you were going to be called Austin the Lesser? You won't because you're older. You'll just be called Austin the Old Fart <laughs> someday. So this is not either one of those James. Uh, this is actually James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. So it's Jesus' younger half-brother. Uh, he actually was the leader in the church in Jerusalem uh, after Peter left to go plant churches in other parts of the Roman Empire. So initially, Peter is kind of the foundation, the rock, the cornerstone that the church is built on after Jesus leaves. Peter's the first one who gives the gospel uh, there in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit comes down and the church is formed. And Peter leads that church for a, a season, but then James... Uh, who becomes a follower of Jesus after Jesus' resurrection, then winds up becoming a passionate pastor and leader in Jerusalem, where for probably the next 20 years, we think, he actually was the pastor there in Jerusalem. Um, this letter is different than a lot of the letters of the New Testament that we're used to reading. Okay, there's a number of books in the New Testament that are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to specific churches uh, to deal with specific issues that were going on in those churches. We have a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Uh, we have a couple letters to the church that he wrote in Corinth. We have a letter that he wrote to the church in Ephesus. And on and on it goes. But James's letter is not written to any specific 
city or specific uh, group of Christians that are dealing with a specific issue. It's kind of a general letter. Uh, James sharing with us his wisdom. And he writes it in kind of a uh, similar style to 1 Peter, although 1 Peter seems to be dealing with kind of some specific issues. Uh, but James actually uh, has a distinct style to Paul's letters, okay? James is not trying to teach us new theological information about Jesus. Rather, he's trying to get all up in our business about how we're supposed to live our lives. Uh, Paul often wants to give a lot of good theological foundational uh, information to the churches that he's writing to. James isn't interested in that. James is actually writing to people that have been following Jesus for at least a decade, possibly two decades at that point. And he's not interested in telling them something that they already know. He's assuming these theological truths. He wants to make sure that they're applying them to their lives. And not just to their lives, but to our lives as well. That's why James can often feel like he's getting up in our face. Because he's less interested in what we know and more interested in about how we're actually living it out. Uh, James's uh, letter is actually heavily influenced by his older brother's teaching, specifically the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we see him kind of echoing some of Jesus' teaching throughout the book of James. And he's also highly influenced by the book of Proverbs, especially chapters 1 through 9, where we see a lot of inference and echoing as well. Uh, James it's probably not fair to say that this book is uh, wisdom literature, okay, in the same way that Proverbs is. Remember we talked about wisdom literature last week? There's a different way that we kind of interpret wisdom literature. It's great principles, and it's usually right. It's often right, but it's not always right. We can't turn it into a formula. Uh, James writes with some similar kind of principles that he's laying out. So we wouldn't call it wisdom literature, but we would say that this is wisdom from a guy that's been following Jesus for the last 20-some years and wants the people that he has the privilege of leading to follow in the same way. So what James actually does is kind of gives us a bunch of kind of challenging, uh, short kind of teachings that are filled with metaphors and great one-liners, all right? Uh, we see this over and over. Uh, James loves his metaphors. We're going to find uh, a bunch of metaphors all throughout this book. And he kind of keeps punching us in the face with these great little one-liners that we'll see as we go. He wants to challenge us to live how Jesus has uh, kind of summarized the Old Testament. Jesus said, summarized the Old Testament and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And James is like, yo, that's what we're going to get after. How do we put those things into practice? So this is just James' legacy of wisdom that he's passing down to the scattered believers and to us. That's what the book is. Chapter 1 is kind of a setup for the rest of the book. Chapters 2 through 5, he kind of shares a lot of different things in chapter 1 that he's going to come back to in chapters 2 through 5. And so as we teach through this over the next number of weeks, we're actually going to kind of be echoing some things that we see where we might start part of our discussion uh, reading a passage in the first chapter, and then maybe we'll see where James echoes it a little bit later as well. That, my friends, is an intro to the book of James. 
Turn to the person next to you and tell them one thing that you learned that you did not know before. Go. All right, if you have your Bibles or your phones, please go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 as our text this morning. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James starts out, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's start in James chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to learn a little bit about who James is now, but not who he used to be. James chapter 1, James describes himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we find that he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. When you hear the word 12 tribes, if you grew up in the church, you would probably recognize that that is an allusion to the nation of Israel. Israel uh, was known as the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob also known as Israel, and uh, when James says that he's writing to the 12 tribes, we know that he's writing then to, uh, we assume, Jewish Christians. In fact, most of the believers at this time, not all, but many, uh, were Jewish Christians. Uh, James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, where the vast majority of the Christians there would have been Jewish. And James actually sees these Jewish Christians as the rightful heir in many ways to the promises. And so he writes and says, uh, I'm writing to the 12 tribes. Now we learned something about these 12 tribes. They're actually scattered among the nations. There's all kinds of persecution that has broken out during this time. We're not 100% sure when James is written. Uh, Some scholars think it was one of the earliest books written, possibly as early as like 41 to 44 AD. So we're talking just like, a decade or so, 12 or 13 years after Jesus has died and been resurrected. Uh, Others think it's a little bit later, maybe in the uh, early to late 50s to early 60s. James is uh, murdered, martyred in AD 62. So it had to have been written before he dies. And so uh, we're not 100% sure exactly when, but uh, during this time, we know that there was a ton of persecution that was happening. Already, um, Israel was basically a, a, a state for the Roman Empire, so they're under Roman rule. The Romans didn't mind so much uh, what Israel did as far as their religious worship, as long as it didn't like uh, turn into a rebellion. 
But these Christians, they were different. Israel, Judaism, actually was given permission by Rome to be practiced. A Christianity was not. And the Judaistic leaders of the time in Jerusalem did not like Christians. And so they kept saying that it was Christians who were stirring up all this trouble. And so Christians were an easy target, not just in Israel, but throughout the Roman Empire. And so persecution's heavy. A lot of folks have actually had to flee. Not only that, uh, but we know that during this time there was a pretty severe famine in Palestine as well. And so many of them had to actually leave their home to go and find uh, food or jobs or whatever uh, the case would be for them just to simply survive. And so uh, they're working through some stuff, and it means that they've been scattered. So James writes this letter to them. Now, there's something that's interesting, though, that James says about himself at the very beginning. I'll get there in just a second because James is telling us who he is now, but he's not telling us who he used to be. To find out who he used to be, we actually have to flip back to the Gospel of John. So flip back to the Gospel of John. Uh, I'm going to read, starting in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. It says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. So uh, Jesus, obviously, is still alive at this point. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, this is like uh, a really important uh, um, feast, a feast of tabernacles, uh, where uh, men especially, but men and women from all over Israel would come to Jerusalem and set up these tents. Um, and there was a, a, a prescribed feast that all those that uh, followed the way of uh, Judaism would come and participate in. So it's a big deal. Uh, Jesus wants to be a part of this. He would have been a part of this growing up his entire life. This is when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near Jesus' brothers. Okay? Hear that? Jesus' brothers. So uh, we can assume that James is one of these brothers. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. So his brothers come to him and they're like, yo, 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 you keep talking all this smack. You're saying this and that. You're doing all these cool things, Jesus. Why are you hiding? Come on, man, show yourself. Go prove it to the world. Now you're like, why are you making them seem like such bad guys? Let's keep reading. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, verse 4. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, verse 5. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. That's who James was. They're mocking his big brother. Like, oh, you're supposed to be this cat, right? This dog, let's go. Go out to the world, show them what's up. They didn't believe in him. What changed? Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's what changed. James knew that his brother had been crucified by the Roman Empire, killed, murdered, buried, was dead for three days, and on the third day rose back to life. James saw him, interacted with him, and became a believer. And that's why James says in James 1 that he is a servant. That means doulos. It's the Greek word. It means slave, servant of the Kyrios, the Lord, the king, the ruler, who is Yeshua, 
my big brother, Christos, the Messiah. That's a jam-packed little sentence there that tells us so much about who James has become based on his interaction with the risen Jesus. Now, uh, I've already mentioned that the scattering has happened all over the place, and that's who James is writing to, and that really brings us to verse 2. So let me read verses 2 through 4, and then I'm going to just kind of carve out a couple of uh, words that are interesting for us to understand uh, before I illustrate what I think God is actually getting at in giving us this text this morning. James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The first word that I want to pop out is the word pure joy. Now, this is interesting to me, right? And I have a lot of, I've taught through the book of James before. I've taught it to high school students. I've taught it to college students. Uh, Whenever we read this first one, people are always like, yeah, yeah, what's up with talking about considering it pure joy? Why do we call it pure joy? Like, he's talking about suffering, pain, difficulty, brokenness, sadness. Why are we supposed to call that pure joy? Like, we just gluttons for punishment? This is what I think James is getting at when he says, consider it pure joy. Have you ever done, like, a a workout video on, well, I was going to say DVD. (laughs) Like, I'm old. Have you ever done a workout video, though, online or whatever? Right? Uh, Back in the day, they used to have these things called Insanity with Sean T. Uh, Now, uh, I used to love these videos, not because I could do them very well. I couldn't. But I just love it because Sean T. All right? Sean T gets out at the very beginning of the video. He's like, all right, guys, today we're going to crush it. We're going to work so hard. You're going to wish you were dead. Your muscles are going to scream. You're going to cry for your mama, and you're going to love it. You're like, yeah! (laughs) Hurt me, Shanti! (laughs) That's kind of what James is doing right here. When Shanti says, we're going to hurt you, we're going to... Your muscles are going to burn, you're gonna, and you're going to love us. He's not saying that you're going to love the process. What he's saying is you're going to love the product. It's going to be painful. But ultimately, it's going to make you healthier, fitter, better, more energy. You're going to become the person you are designed to be. That's, that's what James is saying. He's saying, consider it pure joy. Not because you love it, not because it's awesome, not because it's like this great thing that's happening. Trials, uh, um, the difficulties of life, that's not like something that we all just long for, but it is a reality. And how we interact with it, how we engage with it, when we come in with a mentality that we're going to consider pure joy, not because it's good, but because of what it brings. That's what James is saying. And then he says, consider it pure joy. All right, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, uh, the word here in the original language uh, kind of encompasses three different things. 
Now, we think that James is specifically within this context talking about people who are dealing with uh, the difficulties of following Jesus in a world that is often hostile, okay? But it also has the idea that uh, these are inner struggles that we face with sin. Trials of many kinds is the persecution we experience from following Christ in a hostile world. It's also the reality that we still face the difficulties of sin that we struggle with within our lives, and also the difficulties that we experience by living in a world that's broken with sin. So you have your own sin, you've got the sin of others because you follow Jesus, and you have the sin general that has broken this world that impacts and affects every single one of us. And he says that this then produces a testing. Pure joy, trials of many kinds, testing. It tests our faith, okay? Uh, this is kind of the idea that we put stress on a bridge to see how much weight it can actually hold. That's the word testing. Uh, it's also the same word that we use uh, when we're talking about uh, how we purify gold or metals. They're tested with fire. In fact, they're melted down. They're burned up until they turn into liquid. And then the impurities float to the surface and fall off. Doug Moo, um, New Testament, brilliant mind, said this. He said, the idea then is not that trials determine whether a person has faith or not. Rather, they strengthen the faith that is already present. These trials are intended to produce perseverance. Now, this is one of the ones where I, I think that there's some uh, aspect to the idea of wisdom literature. You ever seen somebody experience a trial and not persevere? I have. Jesus actually talked about it. Jesus actually mentioned in the parable of the seeds that some seed falls on rocky soil and, and it springs up, but when difficult times come, it just falls away. But perseverance is the intended outcome for the Christian of this testing. Uh, patience and perseverance uh, are not the same thing. A lot of times I think we kind of uh, get them mixed up. Uh, N.T. Wright actually was helpful in this. Um, we're not simply waiting it out, if that makes sense. Uh, N.T. Wright actually distinguishes, helpfully, between patience, you see the Greek word up there, which Christians are supposed to exercise towards people, and perseverance, with which they are to respond to problems. Perseverance is what faith and hope and love bring to an, an apparently impossible situation. Patience is what faith, hope, and love show to an apparently impossible person. When we face trials of many kinds, and we will, it is a test of our faith. It burns our faith down to expose the weaknesses that they can float to the top of our lives and then fall away. If we persevere, perseverance is intended to bring our last word, which is maturity. When we persevere, simply put, when we endure or don't give up, our faith is matured. Um, 
I was thinking about who it was that I might just like, I know a lot of folks that because of difficulties, because of hardships, because of testing, their faith has actually matured. I, I can think of uh, good friends that are part of this church, good friends that are actually in my local group. And as I was uh, thinking about it and talking to my wife about it, um, I just kept coming back to uh, my mom. A lot of you guys uh, may know my mom. Some of you might know my mom and not realize that she's my mom because she goes to this church. I don't think she's like not proud of me, but I think she's glad when nobody knows she's my mom, which I does, does, I'm not sure how I feel about that. But um, if you know my mom, uh, you know she's a pretty extraordinary woman. Uh, has raised um, 16 children and is still currently raising uh, children. Um, 13 of them through adoption, Uh, has had over 130-some now foster children that she has cared for from anywhere from uh, a couple of weeks to a few years. And she continues to pour herself out. She's uh, the closest thing that I know to a saint. In fact, uh, she she turned 70 this last year, and uh, my wife tried to figure out how to get her sainted. Um, uh, apparently she has to die first. <laughs> uh, so we're holding off on that for now, but, um, <laughs> uh, when my mom had, uh, I think just turned 30, um, she'd already given birth to me and my sister, um, my mom and dad had adopted uh, three uh, m- more children who were my younger brothers and sisters. And my mom was now pregnant with her third biological child, my little brother, Kelly. Um, we had just moved from Chicago uh, to Flint in the s- summer of 83. And uh, my mom wound up giving birth to my uh, little brother, Kelly, uh, that September. And pretty early on, um, we knew that something wasn't right. Uh, I was nine at the time. Uh, I'm sure I didn't understand, but my mom uh, knew pretty, pretty quickly. And uh, she started begging God within those first couple of weeks um, for certain things, things that you would normally not uh, beg God for, but she begged God that uh, Kelly would be deaf. Because he, if, if, he, if he was deaf, that would explain some of the, the things they were seeing. She, she begged God then, if he's not deaf, then, then it's because his eyesight is bad. He, he's maybe going to be blind because that might actually explain some of the things that she was experiencing. Um, but pretty quickly, after a number of tests, uh, she realized that my little brother um, had pretty severe brain damage and as a result was going to have Uh, profound mental disabilities for the rest of his life. And she said that uh, she literally cried every day for almost a year. I was talking to her about this the last couple of days, and it was during this time that she actually kept a journal. And uh, she shared some of those uh, journal entries with me and uh, told me that I could share them with you. And I want to just share some of the things that she was thinking and working through during this season. 
first one. I said, whenever I really think about this and allow myself to really wonder if you have brain damage, I get a funny feeling in my stomach, almost like butterflies, like an inner chill. As soon as the hurt starts to enter my head, I banish it away quickly. Think of something else. I will try not to grieve until I know for sure. Absolutely for sure. Today I prayed that you would have a hearing loss, Kelly. Because Dr. Rogers said that a hearing loss could account for slow development, such as yours. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you only had a hearing loss and not brain damage? D-Day has come and gone. A week and a half ago, Dr. D told me, Kelly, will never be normal. If it was hard for him to tell me, he didn't show it. And I asked questions as if I had it all together, as if I was handling things very well. But inside I was screaming. A few minutes later, when Dr. I, Dr. Imperial, asked me what Dr. D had said, I could hold it in no longer. The heartbreak just all spilled out, and Dr. Imperial and I cried together. She will always remain special for that moment we shared. Another entry. Today, while Daddy took the rest of the kids to church, and you and I had a couple of hours together, I couldn't help but notice your frequent staring spells. And when I tried to get you to look at yourself in the mirror, you wouldn't or couldn't lift your head enough to see. It's slowly sinking in, I guess. Today, Tori asked me, <laughs> that's me, if I could trade Kelly in for a Kelly with everything okay, except an arm or a leg missing, would I do it? I said yes. One week from today, you'll be a year old. It doesn't seem possible a whole year has passed by already. How do you celebrate a birthday with a child that's at a seven-month-old level? It seems absurd, but we'll celebrate, mostly for the other kids. Lord, you've played a dirty trick. You knew how badly I wanted a baby to love and hold. In the disguise of a beautiful baby boy, you have given me a great burden, a great sorrow, and a resentful husband. This is about a year and a half later. She says, for just a few minutes today, I join you on the floor of your bedroom. Both of us crying, you in frustration or tantrum, pushing me away, me in sorrow or frustration, pulling you close, desiring comfort. At almost two and a half years old, she says, Kelly, you're two and a half years old, and we still refer to you as the baby. The worst is behind me. My sorrow has ceased for the most part. I have adjusted. I'm sure that I will relieve the relive the grief here and there. 
for the rest of my life, but it no longer engulfs me or dominates my mind. I am glad to be free of the constant hurt. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It was one of the darkest times in my mom's life. The woman you know today was shaped and matured by that difficulty. I asked her to reflect a little bit on what God had done and how he had used that time, that pain, to turn her into the person that she is today. She said this. She said, it was a profoundly sad time for me. You can actually show that first picture. Uh, you can get a picture of, uh, that's Kelly on my lap in the red. She said, I felt so very alone. I questioned God's plan, why he would allow this to happen. What good could possibly come from such a sad thing? We were already trying to do good things in life through adoption and foster care. It seemed almost cruel of God to allow this. As I look back now on those painful years, I realize that God used them to open up my heart and my eyes to the needs of children born with disabilities. He taught me that every child has value no matter what they struggle with or how they look. Because I loved my son so deeply, it became easier to love other children with disabilities. And because of that, we opened our foster home to include children with differences and children with medical complexities. One of those kids is my sister Ashley. My brother Cody had already passed away at this time. My sister Ashley is in the wheelchair there. She was abused by her biological father when she was um, just a few weeks old and was left in basically kind of a vegetative state. She never talked, never cried. She was blind. Um, we're not sure what all she could hear. And for eight years, uh, my mom, my parents, my family loved on that little girl. So much of the love that we were able to give to her flowed through the way that God used that trial to mature my mom. She says, I now look back on the birth of my son as a gift that I didn't know I wanted. I didn't think that I wanted that kind of life. I thought I could do bigger things for God and the world, uh, and the world than care for dependent children. I would never have chosen this life back then, but God knew that I was uniquely gifted for this, and he chose to bless me with many more children to love. She said, put it another way, I thought I was destined for great things back in my 20s. I had no idea that God was going to humble me and mold my heart into one he could use in a quiet way. Because I chose to join God in this adventure, the thing I thought I didn't care about became my passion. I never would have chosen this life, but I see God's fingerprints all along the way. Even today, in my later years, God is using me and Bryce 
to bring glory to himself through the way we love and care for children. This, friends, is the effect of enduring, persevering through trials and hardship. It is not fun. It is work. It is hard. It is painful. But when we endure, God is able to do a work in us that we could never imagine, expect, or see coming. We become mature, complete, not lacking anything. Now, it never is fully finished until the day that Jesus comes or calls us home. But the truth is, you won't get deep without going through deep waters. And I want to be a part of a deep church with deep faith. And I will also promise you this, and my mom would tell you the same. God will never leave you to do it alone. This is the promise of Matthew 11, chapter 28 through 30. When Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, we acknowledge that we need you. God, we do everything we can to try to consider it pure joy when we're facing trials of many kinds. But God, it's hard, and sometimes I don't want to persevere. I don't want to keep going. God, I want to give up. But God, I know that when we endure, when I endure, as I see the models of people before me that have the beauty, the power, the maturity. Jesus, we will keep walking because that is who we wish to be. Don't let us walk it alone. Pray that in your name. Amen.